You know, as I've been out and about this season, I've really had this sense that I almost need to preach on self-control this week. Uh, let me explain. Uh, a friend of mine in October, I, I followed him on Facebook and saw that he actually posted a picture of a fully erect and decorated Christmas tree with the hashtag, I have no regrets, in October, a Christmas tree. October 15th, I take my family to the mall, and we're walking through the mall, and uh, all of a sudden I look around me, and I'm a little bit shocked, it's October 15th, right? October 15th, we're talking 14 days before Halloween, it is a month and a half, six weeks before Thanksgiving, and it looks like the North Pole has relocated to Phoenix, and I'm thinking to myself, well, what are people thinking, is there no self-control? Okay, just real quick, time for confession. How many of you already have a Christmas tree up in your house? <laughs> Guys, it is not, we're talking November. We haven't even had Thanksgiving. What do you do like to get to the turkey? You like to sort of peer around the Christmas tree? What do I back to the mall? I'm in the mall and I hear overhead that familiar song from Dean Crosby, I'll be home for Christmas. Isn't that a great song? I mean, when I hear that song, I start thinking, well, it's time to turn on the Christmas music, unless it's like October. But in this moment, I'm thinking to myself, uh, what a, a glorious song. And, and the song really has a, a, an interesting, I believe, kind of story behind it. I don't know if you know the story. But in the story, the song was really written for a soldier who is actually writing from a, a wartime uh, place. He's, he's far from home, and he's writing back home. He's excited about the possibility, the hope, the dream of being home for Christmas. Well, I think that that song is popular for a reason. I think there's a reason that we still listen to it today. And I think it's really kind of the same reason that my friend wrongly puts up a tree in his den in October. And here it is. I believe it's because every human heart has a longing for home. I believe all of us can relate to that desire for that place that God has made us for. I mean, when you think about home, if a home is really revving on all cylinders, what does a good home look like? Isn't that a place where you dream of, of a kind of provision and blessing that is lavished on you, where you are loved, not just in word, but like tangibly, you, you sense the love of a people for you that you are a part of? When, when, when you really see a home that's revving on all cylinders, don't you expect that to be a place where you feel safe and protected and accepted? I mean, those are the kinds of realities, I believe, that come to mind when we have a real sense and longing of home. It's not just for the, the best vision or version of a home that we've experienced. It's for something that we haven't yet even experienced yet. It's something that we long for that is so much more than anything that we have seen here on earth. See, I believe that we all have this desperate desire for that place, a place that is so sweet and so good that it actually elicits in our hearts and souls words of worship to the one who would create such a place. Well, this morning we are back in our series on the life of David, who's not going to make it home for Christmas. No, Christmas did not exist yet. It wasn't a thing. But he's going to be far from home for a while. Now you'll remember in 1 Samuel 26 that it, it, it ends in verse 17 with David lamenting 
to his enemies, saying that they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord. And he's talking about the promised land. And they are making me to go serve other gods in those other homes. Not the home that I was made for here in the promised land. And David understood his home in the promised land to be the the place. It was God's place where God's presence dwelt with God's people. There was no better place in David's mind. See, I think that a good home gives us a glimpse of these kinds of realities. A bad home causes our hearts to scream injustice over the reality that we were created for a better home. But in chapter 27, David has to relocate to Philistia. And he is far from home. He's actually homeless and hopeless in our verses this morning. Now just to catch you up to speed, you'll remember that King Saul disobeyed God's command to kill the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. And God immediately sends Samuel to anoint David. He anoints David as the future king, giving him his spirit and removing it from Saul. Well, after that, in chapter 17, David goes out to fight for Israel in a way that Saul would not against the giant Philistine Goliath of Gath. Now, he goes with not sword or spear, but in the power of the Lord with nothing more than a slingshot, and he drops him like he's hot. Now, 1 Samuel 18 to 26 that those chapters, they largely catalog or cover how another giant, King Saul, seeks to destroy David. And I think 1 Samuel 23, 14 summarizes what's happening in all of those, church, those chapters from 18 to 26. 1 Samuel 23, 14 puts it this way. And Saul sought David every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Every day. Think about it. David wakes up. And he's running from Saul. So far, David mostly looks like he's living out an endless loop of top plays, though. He's faithful, he's righteous, he's wise. He has a heart after God's own heart. And Saul looks like he's, busy, he's buying all of his ice cream at Crazy Cow. This guy's nuts. But again and again, God delivers David out of Saul's hand as David longs for God's people to live in God's place where God's presence dwells. But chapter 27 I think the chapter that we're landing on this morning looks confusing and it looks dark. It's it's really an episode of not top place. See, David no longer looks faithful and righteous. He's a murderer and a liar. He's hopeless and he's helpless and homeless. Well, this morning we'll see that we need a great king. We need a king who chose to become homeless to bring us home to God. We're going to see in David a foreshadowing that points to a greater king, a king who chose to become homeless for us that he might bring us all the way home to God. That's who we're going to be thinking about this morning. But let's go to the Lord in prayer asking for his help as we begin. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we're coming before you today. And Lord, as the holidays rev up, Lord, we are finding ourselves surrounded by all kinds of distractions. But Lord, this morning and this moment, We ask that you would draw our attention towards your word, that you would awaken us to your voice. Lord, that you would give fresh hope to beleaguered saints, that you would bring to life those who are dead in their trespasses. Lord, do this for the glory of your name, we ask. Amen. Well, here's the first thing that we see this morning. It's this, David's heart loses hope in the promises of God. Verse one, we see that David 
David's heart loses hope in the promises of God. Now, our our text begins to take shape here in verse 1, where we we get a little peek into the heart of David. I mean, what a, a vulnerable moment where we as a people get to look in and see what's going on in his heart. You'll notice that this comes on the heels of God rescuing David from Saul, who promises at the end a third time that he won't chase him anymore. I guess we can trust that. See, if you think David looks different here in verse 1, see if you notice that David doesn't seem to be the same David of chapter 26, where he is taunting his enemies boldly as we get this peek into his heart. Verse 1, here's what he says. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Now, this is, I think, a different look for David. You may have missed a key clue to what's changed, but if you look back in chapter 26, verse 10, you'll remember that David, speaking of Saul, says that Saul will perish or be swept away. That's the same word that's used here on the lips of David, who says, now I shall perish or be swept away one day by the hand of Saul. Now, some scholars see this as the rational thoughts of a strategic man. But I actually take these to be the desperate thoughts of a beleaguered exile who's tired of waking up every morning on the run with his friends and family. See, when David faced Goliath earlier in 1 Samuel 17, 37, do you remember the confidence that David had there? What a verse! He is actually speaking to this same Saul about the power of God and how he has released him from the hands of his enemies in the past. Do you remember that? 1 Samuel 13, 37. David says to too tall Saul this. He says, The same Lord delivered me out of the paw of a lion and a bear. He will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. See, God has delivered David from the hands of bears, lions, Philistines, giants, and Saul day after day by chapter 26. But on this day in 1 Samuel 27, David's heart says, I shall be swept away one day by the hand of Saul. Yesterday he told others God would sweep Saul away. Today he tells himself, Saul will sweep David away. Do you you see the change? What changed? David lost hope in God. And his confidence melted into cowardice. I think we need to be careful, as I've said again and again, not to read ourselves into David. Need to be careful about that. But here we find an, an ugly episode in the life of David that begins with a heart that's preaching self-help instead of the gospel. Do you know who the most influential person in your life is? Do you know? Who, who is it that's most influential, whose voice is most influential in your life? Well, the answer is pretty simple. It's you. In fact, Paul Tripp says, no one is more influential in your life than you because no one else talks to you 
more than you do. Just think about it. You are in an unending conversation with yourself, evaluating yourself and others constantly. If you're like me, sometimes you even do that out loud. Have you ever like actually talked to yourself out loud? I think that's okay, unless you find yourself talking back in a different voice. You might have to get that checked out. But we are all constantly talking to ourselves, speaking to ourselves, saying something to ourselves. Let me ask you this. If somebody were to wiretap those conversations that you were having with yourself, what would they hear? What is it that you are telling yourself? What are you saying about you, about God, about the circumstances that you find yourself in? Are you discouraging yourself by rehearsing your failures and God's perceived failures? Or are you rehearsing God's grace in your life? You know, when your soul is cast down, when you are growing weary and doing good, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. You will either encourage yourself to doubt God or trust him. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this well in his book on spiritual depression. He has a famous quote where he writes this. He says, the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business do you have to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope Thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God. Who God is. And what God is. And what God has done. And what God has pledged himself to do. And then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself. And defy other people. And defy the devil and the whole world. And say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. Isn't that a good thing to preach to yourself? That's the message that we should be saying. See, this sounds a lot like what the psalmist does in Psalm 42 to 43, where he repeatedly tells himself amidst his despair, hope in God. He's not telling someone else to hope in God. He's speaking to his own soul saying, hope, hope, hope in God. So I'm just curious, what is it that you're preaching to yourself this morning? Are you screaming at yourself day in and day out, doubt God, doubt God? Are you saying, hope in God? God is the source of my hope. When his countenance is shining upon me, my countenance will change. See, the quality of David's sermons to himself mattered. Mattered more than his podcast. Mattered more than the sermons he heard on Sunday morning. It was what was he preaching to himself on Monday morning when he woke up. See, his hopelessness, notice this, catch this in the text, it led to homelessness in verses 2 to 4. Notice David leaves his home. David's not going to be home for Christmas or any other time, and not just because Christmas didn't exist yet. Notice in verses 2 to 4, David leaves the promised land. So look at verses 2 to 4. This is what it says. So, So David arose. He arose and went over. Meaningful words. He went over. And he and the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath. 
he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, that David had fled to Gath. He no longer, when Saul heard, or when it was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Now, as you listen to this, you see that David's heart traveled from hope to doubt before David's feet arose and went over the boundary separating the promised land from the land of the Philistines. Do you see it? His heart moved before he did. Saul had exiled David from his table and then his family and now his kingdom. I mean, talk about abandonment issues. This is a man who is lonely and abandoned. And when the promised king needs to escape the promised land, it's a bad day for Israel. It's a bad day when there's nowhere for the Messiah to lay his head in Israel. But did you catch the, the way that he ran into, did you catch that he ran to Achish of Gath? I think it's an important, interesting detail. I mean, this doesn't sound like the best place to run if you're running away from home, right? There's some bad places you don't want to run when you're running away from home. This is one of them. But does it sound familiar? Well, it should in a couple of ways. First, Gath, you'll remember it's that hometown of the Philistine, that giant that he slew in the power of the Lord. And Achish. Achish is the Philistine king that David narrowly escaped by the dribble on his chinny-chin-chin when he acted like he was crazy back in chapter 23. And now he's back. He's back to the same place. This time is different. This time he's not alone. He has 600 soldiers. And you'll notice that he also has an updated resume as a notorious outlaw and enemy of Saul. So Achish is thinking, this is a good friend to have. Uh, I think that Achish is probably in this moment, it seems like in this text, taking the stance that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. By the way, it's never good to bind a friendship with a we just hate the same people kind of philosophy. Like he shall find that out himself. But don't miss this. David relocated to the enemy camp. He exiled himself out of the land, becoming a sojourner far from home. He's a foreigner living in a foreign land. And David felt far from home, far from the protection, provision, peace, rest, worship, and presence of God in the promised land. He's in Philistia, but not a Philistia, surrounded by his enemies. Of course, here, David joins a long line of sojourners, doesn't he? You remember that Abram and Isaac were both sojourners who sojourned in the land of the Philistines. But here's the great homeless king awaiting God's promise of a home and a throne. He's rejected and abandoned at home. And I think what's striking here is just how godless this chapter looks on the face of it. God's never mentioned, never looked to, never listened to in, in this moment. But take note, a hopeless David ran and became homeless because his trust shifted from, from God to himself. And how much can we relate to this David desperate for a home? David is a pretty relatable king. He comes from a broken home like many of us have or do. He's an elect exile, living behind enemy lines. But even his home that he longs for looks like a war zone. Do you see it? He's entered a war zone, but home's a war zone too. His father-in-law back home tried to kill him multiple times. He, he, he gave his wife away. 
And he continues to seek his life until he runs away. He can't even hang out with his best friend Jonathan because of the awkward family baggage that comes along with it. Even the people he saved snitch him out and get him in trouble. Maybe some of you are thinking that sounds pretty much like Thanksgiving at my house. Maybe that is. Maybe that's your home or some variation of it. And you long for a home, but a a better version of it. Have you ever thought about that? Like even on our best holidays, our best home experiences, we long for something more, if not just that it wouldn't go away like it always does. And when you have those bad home experiences, you just wonder, will I ever get to experience that, that home that I long for? You ever feel like home is just elusive? You know, maybe your home is great, I hope so, but even then it can feel scary You know, I have a great home, and I already fear my boys moving out. In fact, Benjamin, he's he's 13, and sometimes he comes and looks at me with a glimmer in his eye and a smirk on his face and says, I'm ready to go to college, Dad. And I already imagine, like, his seat disappearing at the table, and then Johnny, and and then Jack. It feels to him like it's exciting and new, and it feels to me like he's breaking up the band. You know, maybe your home feels like hostile territory. Fighting your own husband or wife and your kids. Maybe, maybe your home is, is actually a place that is a constant reminder of pain. The pain of the death of someone you love, a, a child or a spouse. Or, or, or maybe, uh, maybe it's that your, your home life has been so difficult that, that it just reminds you of bad, broken relationships. You know, recently my wife Gia brought me to tears when she was sharing with me some stories about the horrors of some children that she loves from foster care homes. And have you ever felt left home for, for school or, or for a job? You've left maybe for a few years or four years and you couldn't wait to get back and you got back and you realized that when you moved, home moved and when you came back it was gone. Like maybe some of the same people but relationships changed You know, certain businesses were closed down, and it just didn't have that same feel to it. Maybe you have a memory of a great family experience like Christmas that just haunts you because you can't ever repeat it. Or you have some ideal of what Christmas should be because you've watched all the Hallmark movies. I mean, I don't do that, but some people do. And in that dream, that ideal... You're thinking about longing for what the home should feel like when the horses are set free to run. But your real experience never meets the ideal that's in your mind. You know, we all know what it feels like to feel a longing not just for home, but a better home. I think that was David. But third, notice that David's hopelessness and homelessness gets worse. David here is dwelling in a foreign land in verses 5 to 7. You'll notice that David has his mail forwarded to Philistia, specifically Ziklag. Uh, here's, here's what it goes on to say in verses 6 to 7. He says this. He says, so that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day, and the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. 
See, David has asked Achish for a place to lay his welcome mat. He's in exile. He's on the run. And he asked for a home to dwell in with his family and his 600 soldiers. Now, Achish gives him Ziklag, a territory technically assigned to David's tribe, Judah, back in Joshua 15.31. So don't miss this. Ziklag represents a territory promised to Judah that Judah failed to conquer. David's expanding the borders of the kingdom of God even as an exile, living outside of the land, and the land continued to be possessed. It belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. In other words, David took it and kept it. David is doing more as an exile than Saul is doing at home in the land. Now, David spent 16 months living with the enemy, and he expanded the borders of the promised land, even as he's doubting the promises of God. I think some misread this as an affirmation of David's actions. In chapter 27, they say, look, good things are happening. It must be because David's like doing what he's supposed to do. But you see that David's wisdom isn't exactly, I think, being highlighted here. Yeah, he is expanding the borders, even as an exile and a sojourner. But I think to say that this is a picture of of David doing well is missing Two factors that are really important. See, first, I think when we come to this text and see David in a good light, we have two misconceptions. The first is this. We forget that this extraordinary king was also also an ordinary man. He's not a superhero without a weakness. He's fully human. And second, some of us default to Christian karma in our hearts. We do this theologically. We do this practically in our lives. You know what I'm talking about, the theological karma? Like karma is this idea that if you do good, you get good. If, if you put bad in, you get bad out. That's sort of the way that the world works. And we saw a kind of a sense of this in the sense that last chapter we, we were told that God rewards those who are faithful and righteous. Of course, the problem is none of us are faithful and righteous when God looks down. So what's the hope that we have? Well, Christian karma is not a Christian doctrine. See, our good works lead to God's, don't always lead to God's blessings in the sense that we expect, right? It always works out to blessing, but maybe not the way that we expect. And I think in our hearts and minds sometimes, we think that not only does God automatically give me the thing that I want because I've obeyed him, and it's kind of a deal that we've made, but I kind of work back from, if life looks good, it must be because I'm doing right, Like, God must affirm what I'm doing if my life feels peaceful and happy and good. I must be safe and protected. But that's not always the way that that it works. Just like Chance the Rapper says, blessings keep falling in my lap. Praises go up, the blessings come down. That's kind of our theology sometimes. And we might theologically say, no, I don't believe that. But how many of us get upset when things don't work our way and we begin to like work our theology backwards and say, I mean, I don't believe in Christian karma, but what did I do that God would do this? That's what's going on in our hearts. Doubt seeping in. Bad theology. You know, we really should be like the Bereans with our music just like we are our sermons. We should think about those songs that are being played in our souls and hearts. They could set our hopes on the wrong things. But here we find David. David is in his heart not trusting God. What we realize is there really are consequences to sin. 
Praise God that our lives don't reflect the just desserts of our sin day by day. But they're just really trophies of God's grace and mercy. But the consequences of the sin that come, those consequences, the beauty of the grace of God is they're always muted by God's grace until the last day when God's justice will be paid out in full. So don't miss this. The hopeful movement of David expanding the borders of the promised land, even as David doubts the promises of God, are intended, I believe, to highlight that God is the hero of story, not David. Do do you see it? David is not perfect. He is not sinless. But God is good. He will keep his promises even with servants who fail. See, King David. King David is not the great king. God is the great king. 1 Samuel 27 isn't a story about the triumphs of David. It's about the triumph of God's grace in his life. And when David gave up on God, God didn't give up on David and his people. God keeps his promises. Now Saul may have abandoned David to the Philistines, but God didn't abandon David even in enemy territory. Maybe you think I'm playing fast and loose with the text here. Seeing David is losing sight of God. But look what happens in verses 8 to 12. David looks bad. David looks bad. Now, the thing that we need to to recognize is the Bible can be hard sometimes because it's so bloody honest. I think sometimes we wish that somebody would come through and edit all the weird hard stuff. But the Bible doesn't do that. It hits you with like brute honesty. This is what happened. Now, when that happens, you know, sometimes the Bible is just describing an event with integrity, and other times it's prescribing you should model your life after this. And we have to, to sort of come to understand and read through, is this really what God is asking us? Is he either showing us something or is he showing us and prescribing us something? Just because the Bible describes an event doesn't mean that God's prescribing it to us. Just think about this. If verses 8 to 12 were prescribing that we live like David here, what do you think that would mean? Look what it says and think about that as we read through these verses. Here's what it says. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerizites, and the Malachites, for these were the inhabitants of the land of old, and as far as sure, the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philippines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. David's home now in the eyes of Achish. He's got nowhere else to run. Now, how, how about this? Lessons that we learn from this prescriptive text. How about might makes right, right? Like if you've got more force, then you can take what you want. Is that what it's teaching? Or if you jack people's stuff, make sure you leave no witnesses. What about that? Or it's okay to lie to non-believers. Or the end justifies the means. I don't think so. See, the positive results leave us wondering if blessings keep falling in David's lap for his obedience. But notice that David looks to be fulfilling 
Deuteronomy 7's mandate to take the promised land as he's taking these lands that were allotted to Judah, which had not yet been taken. He's taking new territory for the promised land. Notice that there's a little note in there that speaks of these people and these lands that he's taking. He's taking them from people that had dwelt in them from old. They'd never been taken before. New ground is being broken by David. He raids the Geshurites, living in Judah's tribal allotment from Joshua 13, 1 to 2. And the Gerzites, they're not listed anywhere else in Scripture, but likely in this land of Judah. He also takes the Amalekites. Uh, he raids them. You'll remember that Saul failed to obey God's command to wipe out every man, woman, and child. Even the beast in holy war in 1 Samuel 15, which led to Saul's downfall. Here, David is raiding those people. See, David kind of looks like he's picking up where Saul failed. But I think there are a few problems here in the text. First, you know that David's keeping the animals alive. Saul got in trouble for keeping the animals alive. He's keeping them alive. And second, did you notice even more indicting, we get another glimpse into David's thought life in verse 11 that gives a rationale for why he's killing all of the people and leaving no witnesses. He says, it says there that he is thinking in verse 11, we're doing this lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done, such was his custom for the 16 months he lived with the Philistines. Here's what I think is going on in David's mind. You remember from 18 to 26 how the Ziphites kept on selling me out and ratting me out? Well, that's not going to happen again. I've gotten wiser about the way that I'm doing this. See, he forgot the way that every time God rescued him by his mighty hand. But he remembered those guys that sold him out. And his heart is angry about it. And he's wiping them out. He's killing them. He's leaving no witnesses. I mean, here, David looks a lot like the mafia, right? I'm not just going to kill you, but all your family. And you won't have any witnesses to tell or speak in your day at court. David's not, I don't think, looking good here. But there's a third thing. Notice that he's deceived Achish. After each raid, he brings animals to Achish and deceives him into thinking that he's been raiding Israel. That's why in verse 13, Achish thinks in his heart, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Achish is confident that David is actually, in part, fighting against Israelites. He even demands that David join the Philistines in fighting against Israel in chapter 28, verses 1 to 2. That's how much of a sham that David has played on him. And that's only interrupted by Saul seeking the witch at Endor for a word from Samuel about his future. That's where our story kind of breaks off for a second before it picks back up. Saul goes to see this witch and she pulls up Samuel. Samuel comes, weird story, need to go there and read it. But he comes and he speaks and he says, look, here's the deal. Like, I told you that you were going to be judged because of what you did to the Amalekites. You did not obey God, and David's going to replace you. Then our story picks back up in chapter 29. And David only doesn't have to fight Israel with the Philistines because God rescues David from fighting them when the Philistines themselves say, Akish, you are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs if you think we're going to take David, the man who killed tens of thousands, out to fight with us against his own people. That is dumb. It's biblical theology there. That's dumb. See, God's providence helped him escape again, and David's hopelessness led to homelessness and sin. I'm wondering, does that sound familiar to you? Your heart turns to hopelessness, which leads to a kind of 
homelessness, a dissatisfaction at your home, with your home, and then to sin. You know, last time we saw David, he was, last time we saw David looking shady, he was uh, being dishonest with Jonathan in this little story. And um, after the sermon, uh, a dad came up and he said, yeah, my kid sort of leaned over and said, so dad, David lied, right? I mean, that's what happened. I think the answer is yes, and you're free to disagree. But chapter 26, David looks different from David in chapter 27. Here he's a sojourner, far from the promised land, and he looks like a mercenary who's out raiding and killing. David doesn't look righteous like he does so much so in chapter 26. He's far from the promised land, that place where God's people experience the presence, protection, provision, and people of God living in peace with God. Of course, we know that David eventually becomes king, as the story goes. He expands the borders as far as ever. He's sitting on the throne at home. He's experiencing as much peace as they will experience. And from that place, he writes some psalms. He writes Psalm 95, which is interesting. It begins talking about God is the great king and Lord of all. You remember we read it this morning. But then it it takes a real interesting turn because if you think about this, David is ruling and reigning from the throne. There is peace. God is the great king. And then he all of a sudden turns in verses 8 to 9 and says, So do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. And he ends, Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. I'm sure they're thinking, but I thought we were in the rest. We're home. We've got our king. We've got lots of peace. I mean, at least in this moment. And yet David says, even in the home of homes on earth, I still feel like I'm in the wilderness awaiting to enter the promised land. See, David is here feeling that reality of the ever-elusive nature of the rest of God in the home of God. The best meals, holidays, and family moments, the best experience of the kingdom that they have ever had of peace inside and rest from their enemies outside is still pointing them towards a greater future that is to come. Uh, I, I think this is right because you'll remember that in Hebrews 3 and 4, the author of Hebrews picks up this, this very text And it's there that we find that David, the author of Hebrews said, was looking for a future rest that is in the future that is to come. In other words, this fulfillment is pointing us forward towards a greater fulfillment of a greater home and rest that we await, a heavenly one. You'll remember that we had another great Messiah who came, who had nowhere to rest his head, Jesus Christ. How can the Savior who had nowhere to rest his head Give us rest. We know that he did it at the cross. At the cross, he died for our sins, for those things that that were at war against us and that waged war against God, that gave us hostility against God, who is the father of the home that we all want to live in, but that we were rebellious against. He came to give us peace with the father of the good home. It's through his death, through his resurrection, that he opened up a way where there was no way into being, for us to be in the presence of God, at home with God forever. That's the hope of the Christian. It is that that hope that we long for is real. 
that we are looking forward to it, that it is to come, and that there is a way because of what Jesus Christ has done. That is the hope that we wake up to. So let me close the couple of applications for us as we end this morning. First, church Christians, we too are elect exiles with a new family in Christ. Do you hear that? There's a real sense in which we have been shown in the scriptures that until Jesus comes back to take us to the place that we were made for, that our home is actually centered on a person, not a place, that is Jesus Christ. It is by faith that we are united with Christ, and that is the, the, the connection that tells us that we are homeward bound with the Savior that is always, already there waiting for us, preparing a place for us. See, Jesus is coming back to take us all the way home. That, that's the day that we long for. It is a good place. If we knew how good that place was, then we wouldn't want to be here anymore. In fact, we wouldn't be able to live with it. God tells us that it is a place that is glorious. But until then, we need the family of the local church to come around us and to live with us until that day. Do you know what Paul calls the church in 1 Timothy 3? He calls it the household of God. Don't you love that picture? The house, this local church, where God's the dad. That's a good dad, where he cares for his family. He provides for their needs. And you know what the New Testament often uses to speak of language for the way that believers in a local church interact and relate with one another? You know what they use? They use family language. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. Even John, in his first John, is speaking to his church, and he calls them the beloved ones, brothers and sisters, but he also says children, little children. This term of affection and endearment that he has, that he has brought them to Christ, and he loves them, and he's shepherding them. Now, Trinity Bible Church we long for this to be the household of God, not just theologically, but experientially. We want people to sense, and when they are here, that more and more we feel like what a healthy, good family feels like. Yeah, we're the pillar and buttress of truth and the household of God. A place where the love of God is experienced most fully. It is so important that we love one another out of the, the hope that is laid out for us in heaven of the home that is to come. In other words, this house is just a rental. The, the, the forever home that we long for is to come. And if we want to live in this rental well, then we'll understand that forever home that we await for. You know what I'm talking about? I was reading this morning uh, or this week with my family in Colossians 1, and I saw this glorious verse that I'd never seen in this way before. Colossians 1, 4 to 5. Paul is speaking to this church, and he says this, We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, faith in Christ, and of the love that you have for all the saints. You're a loving people. And then he says, because, okay, what's the ground of this? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Do you see it? Now, I know some people say, man, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Paul says, that's horrible theology. You need new music, Right? Like, if you really understood the hope laid up for you in heaven, you would love others better. That's what Paul says. If we don't understand our forever home, then we're not going to love each other well in this rental place. So church, let's more and more set our hearts on the things that are above. Uh, I was encouraged by this just this week. I could give a dozen explanations, but this weekend um, we had a number of things happen. Um, and our brother Reuben, I, I just, I, I literally was uh, tearing up 
I'm going to do it again. Just over this brother and the way that he sacrificially loves his church and his people. Uh, Friday, uh, had a brother in a wreck, and so he went to, to love him and care for him and sit with him in the middle of the night. And then uh, Saturday, uh, another family needed some encouragement, and so um, he basically left work early to, to come and to care for and love them. And here's the man who's, who's just loving his church, loving his church. What causes a man to love a church like that? I think it's for hope laid up in heaven. And brothers and sisters, we have so many people like that in our congregation, driven by that hope that is laid up for them in heaven. See, I believe that the hope of the home that awaits us, it should not make our hearts sad, desperate, and bitter. It should make us loving. Do you you see it? When, When we dream of a home that's not here yet, that should energize us to love others until the day when we get there. If you're a non-Christian, let me just encourage you that God invites people into his family and home who are a hot mess. I'm living testimony of that. See, our God is a good father who loves to invite those who are far from him. People with no homes, broken homes, lonely homes, draw near to God in Christ. See, God calls ridiculous sinners to come home to him. Those who turn from living for this world to living for Jesus find the father they long for in God, that good dad, the best big brother that they've ever imagined in Jesus Christ, who is perfectly faithful and righteous, laying down his life for you on the cross so that you might receive a new family of brothers and sisters in him. And you live with us, a local church who comes alongside you, the household of God, until Jesus returns to take us all the way back home to our forever home with God forever. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are non-Christians, that is a good place. I hope you salivate for it. It is the place where that promise and peace and rest and protection and provision and worship that you long for awaits. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you that you have indeed made us a people for a home. And you have prepared that home for us. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are believers in this room, Lord, that that desire and that longing and that promise that is before us would be a promise that educates and informs and drives our love for one another. And for those who are here who are not Christians, Lord, Father, maybe it's because they feel that This whole world is broken and there's no way out. I pray that today that they would see that there is a better home that they have been made for. That their sadness and sorrows have an answer, a cure that is found in the gospel in in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray today that you would, as we go from this place, help us to be a people that look to, long for, and live out of the home to which we are going. And it's in that great name of your son that we do pray. Amen.